Today's sermon will be from Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 20. You can follow along with me in your Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, feel free to follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished." Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He pray for us. Father, we come to you in the name of Christ and we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, be active here this morning. There are people who are wounded and hurt and need the hope of your word. There are people who are wayward and rebellious and need the hope of your word. Spur on the faithful, call back the wayward, bring hope and healing to the hurt. You can do this, Lord, and we plead that you will. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Little ones, let me invite you to run to the back and meet your teachers. My name's Joey. I'm one of the pastors here. If I've not had a chance to meet you, I'm thankful that you are here this morning. And it is my privilege to open up God's Word and to, to preach it for us. And so... Uh, a while ago, a, a pretty well-known Christian personality um, tweeted this. We must teach the next generation 
the foundation of our faith is an event, not a book. I wonder what you think about that. We must teach the next generation the foundation of our faith is an event, that is the resurrection, not a book, that is the Bible. It seems to me that it's a pretty hip, cool, and relevant statement. And there's part of it that I like. I love the fact that he's trying to highlight the importance of the resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection, then we are wasting our time here this morning. But how do we know about the resurrection? How do we know about Jesus at all? See, we only know about the event because of the book. And you cannot separate the two. We behold the glory of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, through the grammar of the written word, the Bible. You lose the scriptures, you lose the Savior. John Calvin, hundreds of years ago, said, We owe to the Scripture the same reverence we owe God. In Scripture, God opens His most hallowed lips. Do you think Calvin is overstating his case? Think about the psalm we read to open this service. Did you notice what it said in verse 2? You have exalted above all things... Your name and your word. So I don't think Calvin is overstating his case. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look look how Jesus views himself and how Jesus sees the Bible. So we're going to do that from Matthew chapter 5. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, I think that we would all agree that we want to think about Jesus the way Jesus thinks about Jesus. And we want to think about the Bible the way Jesus thinks about the Bible. That's a good place to start if we're following Jesus. And for my friends here this morning that are are not Christians, that are not trusting in Christ, that have maybe questions and and asking about the Christian faith, I'm, I'm thankful that you're here with us. And I'm guessing you showed up here because in some way you respect Jesus. And so another good place for you to start is to think about, well, what does Jesus think about Jesus and what does Jesus think about the Bible. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And so we're going to look at these verses that are found in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. So that's Matthew chapter 5 through 7. In these chapters, we studied them about four years ago as a church, if you remember. And in these chapters, Jesus paints a picture of the Christian life. So each sentence, each saying in the Sermon on the Mount is a brushstroke of a painting a picture of what it means to follow Jesus, to demonstrate the character of God to a watching world. And it's important to remember that this sermon of Jesus is aimed toward disciples. Jesus is declaring before he's demanding. He's talking about who we are before what we're called to do. And you heard this as Jamie read for us. That's why I had her read those first uh, 16 verses that led up to this. So 10 straight times Jesus talks about what is. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, you are, you are. So Jesus starts by telling his disciples who they are, not just what they need to do. 
And here we find this is in, in harmony with the rest of the scriptures. This is what's unique to Christianity. It's not primarily about what we do, but it's about who we are, who we are when we trust in Christ. So when we trust in Christ alone for life and joy and salvation, in Christ there's blessing and life and hope and flourishing. And then because of that, we live a certain way. And so that's what this sermon is about. About what it means to live in God's world according to God's word. That we might flourish and have the fullness of happiness. And so that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. Living as God intended that he might be glorified and we might be satisfied. And so with that in mind. Let's look at these verses from verses 17 through 20 of chapter 5. And I want to work through these verses by asking and hopefully answering three questions. Question number one, what does Jesus think of himself? Question number two, what does Jesus think of the Bible? Question number three, how then should we live? So there's our outline for this morning. Question one, what does Jesus think of himself? Verse 17 again. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So here we have a crystal clear statement by Jesus about Jesus. He's explaining why he came. He's articulating the purpose of his mission. And what is that purpose? Well, negatively... He didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. Positively, he came to fulfill them. And what are the law and the prophets? Well, the law and the prophets is shorthand for referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. From in our English ordered Bibles from Genesis to Malachi. That's the way they spoke about the Old Testament Scriptures. And Jesus is saying, I did not come to abolish, to destroy, to set aside, or make anything in the Old Testament unimportant or obsolete. I didn't come to destroy them. I came to fulfill them. There's so much wrapped up in that word fulfill. If you were to, to read the book of Matthew, you would see he uses that word fulfill over and over and over again to draw us to the person the teaching, and the work of Jesus Christ. And so here are just a a few examples. So chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 22. Jesus This is speaking of Jesus' birth. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Chapter 3, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus' baptism. Let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Chapter 8, verse 17, this is speaking of Jesus healing the sick and casting out demons. This was to fulfill what was spoken spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 26, verse 56, this is speaking of Judas betraying Jesus. All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets? It means this. The Old Testament points to and find its culmination in, its completion in Jesus. 
It means the story of God's covenant, steadfast love for his people that begins to unfold as a seed in the pages of Genesis and Leviticus and Isaiah and Nahum and every other book blooms into the fullness of the flower of Christ. That his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his reign and his return are the flower in which bring the seed to beautiful completion. So if you think about it, the Bible is not a yearbook. What do you do when you get a yearbook? You open up the pages and who do you find? Yourself. That's not the Bible. The Bible's not a yearbook. It is a glorious declaration of who Christ is and what he's done. For the glory of God and the joy of our soul. And so you can think of the Old Testament as a connect-the-dot picture. The Old Testament has the dots and the lines. And Jesus shows up with his crayons, as it were, and he colors in with the most clear, vibrant beauty of all that it means. And so the shadows of the Old Testament find their substance in Christ. So here are a few glimpses. Genesis 3.15 The first prophecy, the Bible says that one born of woman would crush the head of Satan. And this was fulfilled in Christ when he trampled over Satan on the cross and raising from the dead, forever defeating the evil one. Think about Exodus. Exodus tells us how God delivers people out of slavery and brought them into his presence. Is this not what Christ does? brings us through a greater exodus by delivering us from the slavery of sin that we might be in the presence of God forever? Think about Leviticus. God provides for his people a sacrificial system to atone for sins. Is Christ not the lamb of the world who gave his life to atone for the sins of his people? Think about numbers in Deuteronomy and how it shows God bringing his people into the promised land not because of their righteousness but in spite of their faithlessness. Is this not Christ who ushers his people into the ultimate promised land of heaven that we might enjoy him forever? Think about Isaiah 53. tells us of the suffering serpent who will take griefs and sorrows and the iniquities of his people. Jesus fulfilled this on the cross as he took our griefs and our sorrows and our iniquities. Think about Samuel and how there's a promise that the son of David would be a forever king. And we open up the new pages and we see Jesus, the son of David. Think about Micah chapter 5 that promises a shepherd king from Bethlehem would be born to bring peace to the ends of the earth. Jesus, the shepherd king born in Bethlehem who will bring peace to the ends of the earth. I could go on. Every prediction about the Messiah points to Jesus. Every command was kept by Jesus. Every ceremony prepares for Jesus. The law was rightly interpreted and taught by Jesus. Every penalty paid by Jesus. Every promise answered yes in Christ. The Old Testament is about Jesus. He says that here. He also says it in John chapter 5 verse 39. You search the scriptures. He's speaking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Luke 24, 
Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jot down Acts 28, 23. Go read that this afternoon. You'll see how Paul interprets the Old Testament. So how does Jesus view himself? As the culmination of everything the Old Testament points us to and prepares us for. Jesus thinks that he is the sinless Savior who's come to rescue God's people from their rebellion to bring them back into relationship with God himself that they might be forever satisfied. That's who Jesus thinks he is. And notice how he speaks with authority that's only equal to God himself. Look at verse 18. He says, for truly I say to you. And then again in verse 20, for I tell you. The, the, the original word there is amen. Jesus is so confident about what he says, he says amen before he says it. And then if you were to continue reading the, old, the, the Sermon on the Mount, you would see six times over and over, Jesus says, you have heard that it was says, but I say to you. See, the prophets would say, thus says the Lord. The apostles would say, it is written. Jesus says, I say to you. He speaks with an authority that is reserved for God alone. And that's why at the end of this sermon, in Matthew chapter 7, we read this. And when, Genesis, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So Jesus thinks that he is the all-authoritative, eternal Son of God, the promised Savior and resurrected Lord. Do you agree? So most people would not inherently deny the existence of Jesus. History tells us that he lived. So the question is not so much do you believe in Jesus. The question is, is do you think about Jesus the way Jesus thinks about Jesus? So do you think he's just a nice guy or a moral leader, a good teacher, spiritual guru? Well, I think as we see, Jesus' words will not allow us that. If Jesus is not God in the flesh, he is not nice and moral. As C.S. Lewis has so famously written, Jesus is either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. That's right. And I think that we see that here. He's either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. Either he is a liar because he didn't know that he, or he knew he wasn't God, yet he said he was. Or he's a lunatic, and he was just self-deceived, thinking he was God when he really wasn't. Or he actually is who he said he was. And here are our options. If he's a liar, you shouldn't listen to him. If he's a lunatic, you shouldn't listen to him. If he's Lord, you should run to him and bow down and worship him. C.S. Lewis also said, Christianity, or we say Jesus, is either of all importance or of no importance. The only thing he can't be is of moderate importance. 
And so we need to think about Jesus the way Jesus thinks about Jesus. And so, friend, if you're here and you think that Jesus is just a good teacher, I invite you to evaluate your position based on the words of Jesus himself. And I think to be intellectually honest, you have to move one way or the other. You either flee from him and have nothing to do with him, or you run to him and you worship him. If you want to talk more about that, come find me. Find anybody you've seen up front this morning. Talk to the person that brought you. We'd be happy to walk with you as you answer that question. So Jesus thinks about himself as the Lord. What does he think about the Bible? Verse 18. What does Jesus think about the Bible? For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus is saying the word of God is more enduring than the world. It is more stable than the greatest, the biggest of all of God's creation, the heavens and the earth. And not just, it doesn't just contain the word of God. It doesn't just contain truth, not just in its ideas and its concepts. No, Jesus says down to the very punctuation, to the smallest stroke of the pen. That word iota refers to the smallest letter. I read this week, somebody went through and counted all of them in the Old Testament, and there's almost 67,000 of them. The word dot is the tiniest stroke that differentiates one letter to another. So if you think about our English lowercase c, there's just that one little stroke that differentiates that from an E. And so to modernize it, Jesus is saying, not one dot of an I, not one cross of a T will pass away before all that God says will happen, will happen. The word of God does not change. It does not go away. And that's why Jesus says in John 10, Scripture cannot be broken. And Jesus considers not only the Old Testament to be Scripture, but also the New Testament. Again, friend, you can read that in Matthew 24 and in John 14 through 16. Jesus unquestionably endorses the Old Testament, and he unquestionably authorizes the New Testament. I don't think we can have a more comprehensive confidence in Scripture than the confidence Jesus has in Scripture. I was meditating on this this week, and it was just amazing for me to stop and to consider Jesus' devotion to the Bible. You see it in his life, you see it in his death, and you see it in his resurrection. So think about the life of Christ. We know one story of Jesus' childhood at 12 years old. What's he doing? He's at the temple amazing the teachers with his knowledge of the Bible. The next event, his temptation, what does he do? He quotes scripture. His entire ministry. He uses his knowledge of God to exhort, to encourage, to rebuke, and to reveal. Think about his death. Jesus hung on a cross, and what words passed through his lips with some of his final breaths? My God, my God, why are you forsaken me? Which is a quote of Scripture. Psalm 22. The closest thing to Jesus' heart and mind when he was hanging in agony on the cross was God's Word. 
But surely, when Jesus comes back from the dead, he would direct his disciples to something other than the Bible. Surely he would do that. Luke 24, 45. Then, this is speaking after his resurrection, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written. Christ dies on the cross and resurrects and then shows up and does the greatest Bible study ever. That's what he thinks about the Bible. He does not say, look at me, I rose from the dead. It is written. It is impossible to honor the Scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than Jesus did. Jesus warned people from taking away from Scripture. He rebuked people for adding to Scripture. But you know the one thing he never did? He never, ever told anyone they had too high a view of Scripture. For Jesus, the Bible is God's authoritative word. In fact, Jesus seems to go out of his way to affirm what we would think most questionable. In Matthew 19, he quotes Genesis and attributes it to God himself. In Matthew 22, Jesus says, David by the Holy Spirit, and then quotes a psalm. So for Jesus, the author of Scripture is God using men through the Holy Spirit. Jesus was so sure about the perfection and the trustworthiness and the authority of Scripture, he bases an entire theological argument on verb tense. Go read it this afternoon. Matthew 22, Jesus makes an argument for heaven and hell based on God saying, I am, not I was. Jesus is so confident that he argues from the tense of a verb in the Bible. That's amazing. Jesus never questions a single event in Scripture. He never questions a single miracle in Scripture. He never questions a single historical claim. He quotes Adam and Eve, Abel, Noah, and the ark, Abraham, Sodom, and Gomorrah, Isaac, Jacob, the burning bush, the exodus, the giving of manna from heaven, the serpent in the wilderness, Moses' lawgiver, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Daniel, Naaman, Zechariah, and even Jonah in the belly of the fish. Jesus does. Here's what Jesus is saying. Every word of every verse of every chapter of every book in the Bible stands as God's forever true and trustworthy word that leads us into the fullness of joy and hope of heaven forever and ever and ever and ever. Do we see the Bible the way Jesus sees the Bible? So this has profound implications for us. And we're going to talk about those. But I want to answer a question that some of you might be asking. So some of you might be thinking, Joey, I'm, I'm tracking, kind of, but I'm also a bit confused. Because I've read the Bible, and I know that in the Old Testament... There's some really random rules. 
Like, for example, Joey, you're wearing probably a poly cotton blend sweater, and the Old Testament says you can't do that. The Bible says you shouldn't eat shellfish. I personally don't, but I'm sure some of you do. So what do we do about those? Or what do we do about all the commands of bringing sacrifices to the temple? Don't Christians just pick and choose which parts of the Bible they really want to obey? I think those are important and those are really fair questions. And to be honest, I think historically Christians have done a bad job of answering those questions. It's like the, the trump card that makes us think, oh, wow, yeah, uh, I don't know. And so do we. Do we just pick parts to obey and other parts to, to chunk out because we just don't like them? What I hope you see is no. We start where Jesus starts. We start with verse 17. And verse 17 sets up for verse 18, which sets up for the rest of the Bible. So we don't interpret the Bible through the narrow lens of commands, but through the glorious lens of Christ. So remember what he said in verse 17. He fulfills all Scripture. So yes, the Old Testament is commands have various sacrifices and, uh, at a temple and a complex set of rules for ceremonial purity and holiness. You could only approach God if you ate certain foods and not others. If you wore certain types of clothes and not others. If you didn't touch dead or diseased people. But then Jesus shows up and he declares all foods clean. He has no problem touching dead and deceased people. He never went to the temple to make a sacrifice. What gives, Jesus? Remember, all the Old Testament points to and prepares us for Jesus. The Old Testament is the shadow and Christ is the substance. He is the sacrificial lamb. So no, we no longer go to a temple to sacrifice. The temple was the meeting place between the sinful people and holy God. Well, what is Jesus? Is he not the temple? We are not holy and pure and clean by what we do externally, but by who Christ makes us internally. And so, yes, do we still follow the moral commands of the Old Testament? Yes. Why? Because they reflect God's character, and God's character never changes. But the civil and the ceremonial law have been fulfilled in Christ. As one pastor said, he said, if I believe Jesus is the resurrected Son of God, I can't follow all the clean laws of diet and practice. And I can't offer animal sacrifices. All that would be to deny the power of Christ's death on the cross. And so those who really believe in Christ must follow some of the Old Testament text and not others. So we do not ignore parts of the Old Testament. They're fulfilled in Christ. And when we are in Christ, we too fulfill them. So once we understand this, the Bible begins to make a lot more sense. Jesus is telling us that the Scriptures are not just a simple list of random rules and outdated prohibitions. And if we think of the Bible only as a moral guidebook, it's going to make no sense to us. None. So think about it this way. Imagine you leave church today and you're standing on the platform of Tinleytown Metro. And someone comes up to you, you've never seen them before, and they just look at you and say, the bluebird came to the theater. You literally know what that means. A bluebird came to the theater. But you have no idea what this man's words and actions mean. Perhaps 
he lost a round of truth and dare and his friends have put him up to this. That would explain it. Perhaps he's a spy and he mistakes you for a confidant and he's given you a secret phrase. That, too, that would explain it, right? Perhaps he's a bird watcher and he's mistaken you as a member of his bird watching club. That too would explain it. But here's the point. The only way to know what this man means is by placing them in a larger story. Without the larger story, his words make no sense. There's no meaning, only confusion. And so it is with the Bible. Apart from the story of Jesus, the Bible makes no sense. So as you spend time in God's word, think about how the written word points you to the living word. And remember, Jesus doesn't abolish God's law. He accomplishes it. He fulfills it. And the Spirit enables us to live that out, to fulfill it. To live in such a way that we display God's glory by living in God's story. And remember, the story is not just isolated, select passages. The whole story of Scripture informs the way we think about money, intimacy, power, suffering, death, and everything else in life. The story informs the way we should live, which leads us to our third question. In light of who Jesus thinks he is, the eternal Son of God, in light of who Jesus, what Jesus thinks about the Bible, the authoritative Word of God, how then should we live? Jesus gives our answer in verses 19 and 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever teaches them and does them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So notice the the connecting word in verse 19, therefore. So Jesus is saying in light of who he is and what he's done, that's verse 17. And in light of the enduring authority of God's word, that's verse 18. Therefore, we should joyfully obey God's word with neither lawlessness, that's verse 19, nor legalism, that's verse 20. So how should we live? We should joyfully obey God's word with neither lawlessness nor legalism. So Jesus lays out two possibilities. In verse 19, we can either relax God's word and commandments and teach others to do the same, or we can preach and practice all God's word and teach others to do the same. Now, people banter over what does it mean to be least in the kingdom of heaven. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that this week, but I think that misses the point. Jesus' point is not to give a minimum level of obedience, as if he's okay with some disobedience. No, Jesus is never okay with minimizing, reducing, or eliminating parts of Scripture. Again, you can see this clearly as you read the Bible. Uh, You can go read Matthew 18, where Jesus condemns those who lead others to sin by distorting the law. So that's, that's not the point. So in, in this passage, Jesus is confronting a common attitude in his day about the word. The teachers of the law divided the law into the least commandments, not that important, and the greater commandments that, yeah, you need to keep. You can see this when the Pharisees asked Jesus, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? 
And so they, they tried to divide the law up into least, not so important, and great, really important. Why? So they could navigate the law in the way they, which they felt good about themselves. But Jesus is going to have none of that. He won't let them off the hook. He, he demands you need to keep all of it, the least and the greatest. Nothing in God's word is unimportant. All of life is to be brought under the authority of God's word. As I read this week, a quote from another man, he said, if you only believe what you like in the Bible, you don't really believe in the Bible and trust Jesus. You believe in and trust yourself. So the questions are before us. Where are we in danger of relaxing God's word? Where are we in danger? In prioritizing worshiping with the church on Sundays? I'll go if I have nothing else going on. In committing to one local church? In our sexual ethics? In our discipling of Christians? In our confessing sin? In our sharing the gospel? In pursuing peace and forgiveness? in giving generously, in raising our children in the instruction of the Lord, in our prayer and our fasting? How do you view the Word of God? Like Psalm 19, more desirable than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey, even honey from the comb. Do you meditate on and marinate in God's word? Do you memorize it? Do you ask people to hold you accountable to it that your life might be filled with flourishing? So we cannot honor and trust Christ and dishonor and distrust the book that points to him. Jesus himself says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And notice what Jesus is teaching in verse 19. When we disobey, we teach others to do the same. When we obey, we teach others to do the same. In other words, we're always discipling. Always. We're always teaching somebody something. The Christian life is personal, but it's not private. And so it reminds us of the importance of keeping God's word. And I just want to say, Restoration Church, I praise God for you. I am so thankful for you. We are a deeply flawed church. You know this. But I think if people spend time around us, they would pick up on at least two things. Well, three, but we're deeply flawed. That's number one. Number two is, we strive to delight in Jesus. And number three, we take God's word seriously. And I praise God for that. It's not uncommon for me to get an email or have a conversation with one of you talking about how you're trying to apply God's word to your, to your life. By God's grace, I've helped apply the Bible to retirement plans and TV watching habits, job decisions, relating to family members and sin, applying it to sickness and suffering, to dating, to marriage. All these things. And I'm not the only one who does this. Last Sunday evening, I met with the community group leaders. And I just, we, for probably 40 minutes, we just went around and talked about how thankful we are for various things. And one of the common refrains was the community group leaders were thankful for how the members of their community group helped each other apply the scriptures to their lives. 
praise God that this is what's happening. As you ruthlessly and joyfully seek to help each other follow the least and the greatest of the commandments. And as we do this, may we never fall into the seduction of legalism. That is the danger of thinking we can earn God's favor. That's Jesus' warning in verse 20. Verse 20, for, and for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus just finished saying we must obey God's word in all its fullness, but he couples that with a warning here. Don't think your obedience will bring about the righteousness required to have God's favor. And that's a staggering statement. The Pharisees were myopic and meticulous in keeping the law. They knew all the commandments, and they tithed from their spice rack. How many of you do that? They were extra super holy people, at least on the outside. Yet Jesus says our righteousness must exceed theirs to enter the kingdom of heaven. So is Jesus preaching a works-based gospel, a message that, that we need to do enough to earn God's approval? No. Notice Jesus' criticism is not that the Pharisees are not good. He doesn't say that. He says they're not good enough. As our brother Chris so helpfully reminded us from Philippians 3 a couple weeks ago, the Pharisees were not humanity at our worst. They're humanity at our best. And Jesus says, not enough. He's emphasizing that those who truly love God will live righteous lives. Yes, to a degree exceeding that of the Pharisee. But it's also a kind of righteousness that's different from the Pharisees. See, the Pharisee had a kind of righteousness that came from themselves. Jesus is saying you need to have an altogether different kind of righteousness that does not come from yourself, but it comes from the one who is truly righteous. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus is calling us both to a kind of righteousness and, yes, a degree of righteousness, both of which exceed that of the Pharisees. So to more fully grasp the the Pharisees' righteousness, let's look at Matthew 23. So here's one point of Jesus criticizing them. Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. Tell us what you think, Jesus. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So on the outside, the Pharisees might have looked righteous, but on the inside, they were lawless. On the outside, they looked clean and received man's praise. On the inside, they're dead and received God's condemnation. So they were more interested in actions than affections. They were more interested in following commands than treasuring Christ. And Jesus says, that's not good enough. Your righteousness must exceed that. Again, he's speaking of a categorically different righteousness. And this type of righteousness comes not primarily by trying, but by thirsting. 
Remember the beatitude? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they shall be satisfied. So we have to thirst for a righteousness that's not in of ourselves. That it's found in Christ. It's a different kind of righteousness. But it results in a different degree of righteousness as well. Meaning what we do. So this righteousness that Jesus speaks of is a position before God that results in a practice of righteousness as well. We can't separate those two. We can't separate them. And this is comforting and it's challenging. So it's comforting because this means that my deepest failures and flaws and sins and rebellion do not have to define me. No. I'm not made righteous by primarily what I do. I'm made righteous by trusting in Christ and who he is. And so that's really comforting to me. And so this morning, if you feel like you're unworthy of God's love, say, no, come to Christ. He is your righteousness. That is comforting. And it's challenging. Because if you're thinking, well, Christ is my righteousness. I don't have to do anything. Jesus doesn't say that here. The entire Sermon on the Mount are things you need to do because of who you are. And so our position of righteousness before God leads to a practicing of righteousness before men and women that we might give glory to our Father in heaven. That's what Jesus is getting at. So true righteousness affects Our love, who we love, and our lives, what we do. Changed hearts, new motivations, and grace-fueled, God-glorifying actions that come under the joyful submission to all of God's Word, that we might live lives of flourishing, of happiness, as Jesus says, the blessed life. So how then should we live? By practicing and preaching the commands of Christ while relying upon Christ. Practicing and preaching the commands of Christ while all the while relying upon Christ. This is the happy life, the joyful life. By placing our story inside of God's larger story, we might be satisfied by the one to whom the story points, Jesus Christ. So this is why week after week we come up here and we unfold God's word. And we try to teach it. That's why we do this. We believe this is what is best for our church. We want to think about the Bible and the story of Scripture the way Jesus did. So I invite you to come back week after week after week to hear the Bible. And it's important because Jesus thinks the Bible is God's word. Jesus thinks the Bible is God's word about him. Jesus thinks the Bible is God's word about him being the promised Savior and resurrected Lord. Jesus thinks the Bible is God's word about him being the promised Savior, the resurrected Lord, and calls us to live in light of it that we might be happy forever. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of Scripture. We thank you that it points us to Christ. 
Allow us to savor the Scriptures and allow us to see Jesus as we do that, that we might enjoy Him forever. Father, Holy Spirit, be active right now. Take the word that was preached and encourage. Take the word that was preached and rebuke. Take the word that was preached and bring hope and healing where it is needed. And bring us back week after week as we look to the word that we might trust and treasure Jesus forever until we meet you face to face, we pray. Amen.